0: Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, joined by my friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. Christian, word on the street is that your mouth is not necessarily in the same condition it always is when we record these episodes. The The left side of my mouth is currently numb. If you feel or
1: sense a difference, that is why. It prevents me from spouting off tons of emotions and also encourages my teeth to bite my tongue at inopportune
0: times. So if you hear Christian cut himself off at some point, it's because he has chomped down on his own tongue. And to compensate for the emotion, I'm planning on getting into a few screaming fits. Maybe weeping openly on this pod will really compensate for the uh, any any loss of emotion you have, Christian. So never fear, listeners. It'll be okay.
1: I'm just a melodramatic person to you, aren't I? I'm just a tool.
0: <laughs> melodramatic, no. Tool, perhaps. You are the producer of this podcast. So, you know, gotta <laughs> gotta be honest with myself about some things.
1: Sure, 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 sure.
0: And if you hear any uh, shuffling around in the background, it's because my dog is getting tangled up in the cords beneath my desk. So <laughs> hopefully that doesn't come through my mic. But we're not here to talk about dental work, nor are we here to talk about dogs. We are here to talk about the final movie in our 1975 Best Picture Blend of the Month. That movie, of course, being the big winner, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Christian, I asked you this question question on last week's episode but this is a movie I was watching for the first time obviously I had heard a lot about it but I was coming into it for the first time so for you what was your relationship if any to this movie
1: so I have seen it in high school but not in a high school class when I was in high school it was on tv at one point and I know that my mom was watching it and I watched it with her and I don't even remember if I saw the whole thing I do remember my emotions toward it though and that was they were very, very positive the first time I saw it. It was just fascinating being able to see kind of mental patients um, or at least a, a, a group of people that I didn't had never seen before on a film.
0: Right. This is a group of people who were not always treated charitably in Hollywood movies. A lot of times in classic Hollywood stories – people would be threatened with being taken off to an asylum or a hysterical woman is criticized as being mentally ill. And so I don't know the whole history of mental illness in Hollywood, so I don't want to say something uninformed, but One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, obviously with its Best Picture win, definitely felt like a step forward in the treatment and portrayal of um, mental illness of mentally ill people. And it fits in with the 70s, obviously, this era of change in Hollywood called the the New Hollywood for the bulk of the decade, and these types of movies were winning Best Picture Oscars, so a very cool one in the history for sure. Uh, in terms of just how this movie came together, there is a pretty cool story for it. Uh, were you aware of the Douglas family's involvement with the movie, Christian? I knew that Michael
1: Douglas was the producer, and I knew that because Michael Douglas was the producer, Danny DeVito was in the movie.
0: Right. That's yeah, Michael Douglas... Of course, an Oscar-winning actor who he would go on to win later in his career managed to win an Oscar for producing a Best Picture winner earlier on in his career. Pretty cool. He had the rights to the story because his father, who, of course, is Kirk Douglas, actually had the rights from when he purchased them and performed in the Broadway production, maybe off-Broadway production, of the of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So it went from novel to stage adaptation to ultimately a film, and there this was a family affair, obviously, Michael picking up the, uh, the burden from Kirk. He, obviously, he sold the rights to his son as a way to keep it in the family, but naturally, a, a cool classic Hollywood family uh, <laughs> winning the day here as this movie ultimately brought them to Oscar glory. There were some there's just a lot of sort of fun behind the scenes fun facts for this movie Christian so I have a few that I want to share as they are part of just the the background information and the build up to the movie but was it anything stand out to you in terms of the production or any background info that might be fun to share or have people to for people to keep in mind
1: there are significant differences from this and the book i have not read the book but i've read the differences and had they been employed this would be a vastly different movie
0: it really would and we'll get into that as we discuss the screenplay um as part of our review section but i i am it is an interesting facet of the movie obviously every adaptation means it it's going to change in, s- in some capacity. And of course you want the originator of the material to stick around, but um, Ken Casey, I believe is the name of the original author of the book actually distanced himself from the production because they, of the changes they made and the changes got so drastic that he actually sued and uh, won a settlement against the production. So <laughs> he famously never wanted to watch the movie and claimed to dislike it for the rest of his life. So a troubled, history there with the author of the material, even if it is a Hollywood success story. In terms of anything else relevant to know, this is Milos Forman's second movie. He, of course, was the director here, his second movie in the United States. He had come over from Europe. He's from Czechoslovakia and was rebounding from a uh, his first English language movie, which was critically panned. And, of course, it would go on to be a smash hit. It was We mentioned this on the Jaws episode, actually, but it was the second highest-grossing movie of the year after Jaws and the seventh highest-grossing movie at the time. So not just an Oscar winner, of course, but also a, a People's Champ a movie that tons of people got to see that year. And, of course, it's gone on to have a reputation that is well-regarded from people and critics alike. Anything else here, Christian, uh, before I share my <laughs> goofy <laughs> library story <laughs> for the benefit of our listeners?
1: Here's the thing. My... <laughs> I know you're going to share that story. My picture was also doing that.
0: Oh, in terms of aspect ratio. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'm taking this. Um, I took this too far, but. My library story. Of course, I go to the library to borrow One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I was in luck. There were two options for me, one of which was a two-disc special edition, and I was like, you know, I don't need the two-disc special edition. I don't really have time to indulge myself with special features. Let's just get the single-disc edition. Turns out this was a DVD produced in the year 1997, which, as you may know, (laughs) was very early on. It's the year I was born. The year Christian was born. Very early on in the production of DVDs, as they obviously began to be mass-produced in the 90s. so, this was uh, not the best <laughs> viewing experience, but it sounds like your aspect ratio was similar to mine. I looked it up, and this was a movie shot in 185.1, which is a widescreen ratio, but it seemed like I had sort of a TV version of this movie. Obviously, I don't have a massive screen, but the the black bars were there on the sides. It was a that kind of traditional TV ratio. So, maybe we both had that. Do you know if your DVD was old like mine?
1: No. I do not. Okay,
0: Christian, whatever. I also laughed because one of the special features was just the cast and crew. Yay. <laughs> Very special feature. I can watch the credits if I want to. Okay, last thing. We'll just name out some of the major players, anybody who we haven't mentioned, of course. So, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, directed by Milos Foreman, written by Lawrence Hauben and Bo Goldman, obviously produced by Michael Douglas and Saul Zantz, starring Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher with a great supporting cast that we will get into. And winner of, ultimately five Oscars on a number uh, of nine nominations. So with that, Christian, we now get to our opening question as we jump into this review. So One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest follows a group of men who are patients at a mental hospital, obviously. And something that I noticed while watching the movie is that your opinion of this movie will partially, if not predominantly, hinge on the film's treatment and portrayal of mental illness and people who are mentally ill. So, Christian, as you were returning to this movie for the first time since high school, what were your thoughts on the depiction of mental illness in the film? And was it successful? Was it offensive? Or was it maybe a bit of both?
1: I don't know. I I really don't. And I think, uh, okay, an interesting thing is that the the mental illness treated here at times is definitely over-exaggerated to the point where... I, I'm, I don't know what I'm watching or what illness they're supposed to have. However, there's a crucial line in this movie where uh, Jack Nicholson's character realizes that he is one of very few people who's actually been sentenced to this mental illness, whereas everyone else there is there voluntarily. Thereby suggesting, and this is part of one of the overall themes of the movie, that people here aren't crazy. They're just being treated as such. In In that sense, I think the theme shines through. I'm not quite sure what to make of the individual characters and what illness they're supposed to be portraying, but it didn't stop me from enjoying the movie.
0: I'm glad to hear that. And I, I think I'm with you in that There was, I had some concerns going into it, you know, obviously this movie's made in the mid-70s, so how well will it treat mental illness? And in general, I found this to be a pretty generous portrayal, and as you're pointing out, that not a lot of these illnesses are named. It's just people who are being treated, many of whom voluntarily have checked into this hospital to be cared for. I think that is a wise choice, and that's probably part of Cuckoo's Nest, the, the novel. But I think it's a wise choice on behalf of the movie not to identify these people with illnesses, which of course are based in reality, have real symptoms and (laughs) real people struggling with them, who could have felt, and obviously this wasn't always something considered back in the day, but who could have felt offended by the portrayal of their illness on, on screen if it were identified. Or obviously the film could have been factually incorrect or say that somebody had this disease and then they act like they have symptoms of a different disease so all in all i think that was a wise choice and you're you're right in that it's just general about these people and so we're allowed we can kind of connect with them because we don't necessarily know what they are afflicted with they're people who are seeking help who are seeking care and maybe don't trust themselves out in the real world for the most part obviously randall mcmurphy who's jack nicholson's character is (laughs) not there voluntarily as are a couple of others
1: I mean, I mean that—that's my only thought on that. The, uh, I don't, I don't know. Uh there are a couple of thoughts in my head. Where do you want to go with this conversation first?
0: Well, I had planned on on staying on this topic. If there's nothing else that you have really to add to it, then my plan was actually just to go Oscar by Oscar, and so we can <laughs> look at the acting first, talk about the screenplay, and make our way eventually to Best Picture. But what's on your Can it, can your it make mind? us? Can I make a small suggestion? Christian, my beloved co-host, of course you can make a small suggestion.
1: Can we start versus with, with the Nicholson versus Fletcher of it all? And I think that, okay, you have Randall McMurphy who is here. If we're, If we're to go through a brief overview of the plot, he is someone who does not need to be sentenced to a mental institution, but got sent there as opposed to prison. For... It was statutory rape, right? Yes. Okay. And then he is kind of leading the patients of this mental institution to have a higher sense of joy and a better view of themselves. And we're juxtaposing him with uh, Louise Fletcher, who plays Nurse Ratchet, who is the one of the wardens, the head nurses who is tracking, uh, well, helping them out, supposedly. and Well, not helping them out. She's anti-Randall McMurphy. She's anti-Jack Nicholson. But um, she is the person who's supposed to be, you know, caring for the patients in general.
0: Right. She has a very strict idea of care, and she tries to adhere to that and sometimes has a- an iron grip over her own sense of control.
1: I, okay, so here's the thing, because I, the first time I saw this movie, I thought this too. Nurse Ratchet to me, is not the most evil person in the world. And I kind of wanted to start off by asking you how you felt about that. Did you take a side in Nicholson versus Fletcher, or did you feel like you had to take a side? How did that dichotomy, because their power struggle is what moves the plot forward
0: right there there is there's a lot of fun that the characters have in the course of the movie but the central tension is between mcmurphy and nurse ratchet and going into this I really expected more Nurse Ratchet because she is a famous movie villain. I'm not sure if, for listeners if you're aware of the AFI lists, but uh, the AFI has these 100 years, 100 movies lists. One of them was 100 years, 100 heroes, and villains, and she was rated the number five villain <laughs> in the 100 years that this list was charting. And that just surprised me, because I know I know the, of her reputation, but... She was not nearly as really evil or insidious as I was expecting her to be. I had heard that she was abusive, and there are certainly ways that she acts that are abusive. But I had read another review after watching the movie that basically said she was a compelling character because she's really just somebody who obviously is a nurse in this hospital and believes she knows what's best for these patients. And that's why she's compelling, not because she's evil or sadistic. It's just that she believes that she's doing the best that she can and that she is entitled to her knowledge and her influence because obviously she studied it worked for it lived it for years and that's what I, I find her compelling and I think we're the movie asks us to be on McMurphy's side because of course Jack Nicholson is the big star of the movie and it's about these these men finding autonomy and dignity and liberty from the the system that is oppressing them if you will but, but, okay, but I, I did as, as I was looking compelled.
1: As I was looking at her, I kind of got the same feeling I get when my students act up that you it's your students aren't acting up necessarily to try and get on your nerves. Sometimes they're doing so because they want a greater sense of agency and sometimes they do it in ways like cursing, which I don't allow cursing in my class, but they're like, it's how we talk. And that's kind of been a constant struggle between me and my students. Me saying, I don't want you to stop speaking the way you're speaking, but I I don't want you to curse because that doesn't have to deal necessarily with how you're speaking. And that's how I felt about her. That she's not someone who is even necessarily for the institution. She just thinks that the work that she's doing, because I kind of do think she cares about some of these people, is being undone by this upstart. And I think her biggest sin is that she's strict.
0: Right, and... I think what is interesting about her character is that, with today's eyes and today's lens, you can see ways where she is relying on out-of-date knowledge, or where she is is actually unkind, as opposed to just in charge. And so there are ways where she does make missteps, obviously. But um, you're you're right in that she's not this evil person. She is sort of like a, a teacher in a classroom. She just knows. Or at least she believes she knows what is best. And okay, she's n- trying number to act five on that villain?
1: It, okay, I know <laughs> that Emperor Palpatine is not on that list. Is she worse than Emperor Palpatine?
0: <laughs> All right, Christian. We'll have to see how Nurse reacts. Is she worse ranks. than Emperor Palpatine? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Darth Vader is number one on that list. Let's see here. Emperor uh,
1: Palpatine's not on that list, and I don't see a world where
0: Nurse Ratchet is more evil than Emperor Palpatine. Number four, the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz. Okay. she's bad. Okay, sure. Fine. <laughs> number Fine. three is Darth Vader. Okay. Number two, Norman Bates from Psycho, naturally. And number one, Hannibal Lecter. Silence so, of the lamps. He's the number one serial killers people
1: who commit mass genocide and people who imprison little munchkins <laughs> are above nurse ratchet who's who's number 6
0: number 6 is mr potter from it's a wonderful life
1: is isn't he the guy that almost leads the other oh okay okay <laughs> this is interesting
0: this, this is, is interesting. a finalist yeah. there there's episodes of uh, <laughs> that we could go through uh for this list but i again i I think in terms of her ranking on this heroes and villains list, it's more about her, how indelible the character became. And part of that is the strength of the performance, of course, winning Louise Fletcher an Oscar here. Part of it is Cuckoo's Nest, just reputation and uh, belovedness within both critical circles and normal people circles alike. So maybe it's not an assessment of her evils, (laughs) but rather of the performance and of the character. And to that end, I really enjoyed louise fletcher's performance mostly because it is extremely restrained and controlled and she says so much with her eyes and her face throughout this movie and you can tell when mcmurphy and the other men are getting under her skin and yet she manages for most of this movie to keep it under control and under the surface and she can play unfair games with them you know thinking about the scenes where she asks them to vote on if they'll watch the world series game or not and she can deliver punishments to these other these fellow grown-ups and she can do it all in the same controlled way and that was so compelling to me about louise fletcher and i, I mostly was surprised by how little screen time she had as she ultimately won in the leading actress category but in many respects, her screen time represents a, maybe a supporting role, but I think with the influence she and the impact she has on the movie and on the other characters, I can see why she was nominated and, and ultimately won in the leading category.
1: I think in the book, she's actually evil. So uh, I, I think I read that somewhere, that they toned her down in the movie. Now, the first time I saw this movie, I do remember not being impressed by her performance, and this time around, I'm much more favorable on it, and I think part of that is because of what you said. There are moments when she says nothing, and you can tell she's like screaming inside. And and, and there are moments, I think, where I, at the very end of the film, she asks one of the patients how they're doing, and she has an injury at this point, and we won't get to why she has that injury yet. But she asks them. She kind of has a smile on her face, and I think this is a caring, gentle woman, also. <laughs> and these nuances which are so small I, I i guess i i respect restrained performances but they're not always my thing i'm like if you want to act sure go 120% i mean why i'm mean, but that's what jack Nicholson is doing he is going like 500% here uh so
0: should should we should we start comparing the two we should and and you make such a great point about her how restrained Louis Fletcher's performances and how unleashed Nicholson's performances, because they are very good balances to each other on this scale. And if Nicholson was going up against someone who was as loud and as boisterous as he was, just on the opposite side of the you know, of the team, I guess, this would have felt so much more melodramatic and instead he's allowed to be the the center of attention and the the black hole for this movie in terms of gravitas and maintaining control over the characters uh but fletcher's nurse ratchet is a very good counterweight to him but nicholson who we have not yet spoken about uh he is honestly so fun to watch (laughs) in this movie what'd you make of him
1: it's it's okay I was a huge fan of Jack Nicholson's performance the first time around. I think I mellowed out a little bit this time. Interesting. And it's, it, it's not that I dislike it at all, but I can definitely see he's kind of playing the upstart. He's playing the upstart. He's playing the defiant kid, student, who has maybe a heart of gold. Maybe. I'm not completely sure of that. But is is wanting the best while also an agent of chaos and it 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 feels as though uh sometimes he's resorting to being loud rather than his character being what demands him to be loud
0: interesting i i i feel like he's a pretty consistent as a character and it wasn't necessarily an um what's what's the right word here not necessarily a careless performance but it felt like he really got this this guy who we we do have to wonder is he a a genuinely good or a genuinely bad person because of course he is in prison on charges of statutory rape and i think that is one element of the story that it's hard to talk about how things have aged because i i don't know uh i I'm not gonna say They that completely this... gloss over that fact, by the way Yeah, it's, it's mentioned at the beginning And then we We,
1: Cause we don't even know if he's in prison for that Or, or was sent away for that there It are, sounds like he's done several things
0: Mention of his record And assault is on there multiple times Apparently And he says that he was originally in prison Because he fights and uh, F-words <laughs> Other F-words too much to keep to avoid that explicit tag here on this, <laughs> this dear podcast episode so we don't know ultimately what did him in it does seem like it is the statutory rape charge and so that is is obviously tough to swallow he maintains his innocence over the whole situation but he mcmurphy wins you over and i think the the key aspect of his character is that he and fletcher are these thematic stand-ins where or Louise Fletcher, I should say, Ratchet is the character. So McMurphy and Ratchet are these two thematic stand-ins. Ratchet for authority, for systematic control, and McMurphy for freedom and liberty and non-conformity. And just that, that to me is what stood out the most to him. He is this guy who would stress me out in real life if I knew him. Whether or not he was mentally ill, uh, if he was a com- of clear, sound in mind, he still would stress me out. But I love Nicholson's performance because he was able to be this agent of chaos in this mental hospital and yet also demonstrated a clear level of care for the other people around him. And he wanted what, what he thought was best for the other men with him, just like Ratchet assumed she wanted the best for them. And obviously, both of them act in their own self-interest, whereas Ratchet is laying down rules and regulations the men must follow. Nicholson, of course, is taking advantage of them at times, and he's using them at times. But of course, ultimately, he also takes great care of them. And we see at the end of that movie how that care makes <laughs> forces him into some rash decisions, of course. But I was really compelled by him. Were there any particular moments or scenes that stood out to you as giving, just giving you reservations about the performance? So there, um, from the moment
1: we, we meet him, he kind of lays out his charges, right. Of like, of why he's being sent away and begs you to consider him a, a not morally upstanding citizen. And I think when he is our hero, I have a distrust for him that he wants us to have. And so when it comes time to deciding whether or not he was what was best for the patients, that's where I get torn. Is he what was best for the patients or not? Um, and I don't know if that performance choice, his performance is sleazy. It's slimy.
0: That's a good word and, for it.
1: Well, and for and I don't, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure whether that, for for the ultimate hero is is what best helps the story along but is what works fantastic when in tangent with nurse ratchet if they didn't have each other if any other performances have been made it's like i don't think fletcher's performance is the best i don't think nicholson's performance is the best but i think that them as a duo is amazing
0: and and, hey that's that's the movies in many respects of course (laughs) you know you have actors playing across from each other and you have a director giving them notes and guiding their performances you have writers who are giving them the words to say and and working with them in tandem depending on the movie of course but you get to see all of these these things coming together i mean we can also say even an editor splicing together the right takes (laughs) and building sometimes these performances in the editing bay you have all of these things working together and where the individual performances maybe don't blow your mind in a vacuum, you're. I think you're right in that they they do work very well together in, in tandem. And if there's anything else uh, to add about Nicholson before we move on, I I think this is one of his obviously his more iconic performances. It's his smiling face on the poster. It won him his first Oscar after a string of nominations in the '70s, and you see so many of the classic Nicholson stereotypes, (laughs) you know, and there, I guess not stereotypes, but just marks of his characters where this character who's a little bit unhinged, who's not afraid to say what comes to his mind, who is loud and who's brash. And it's, it's always fun to, get to see a a performance like this, to see an actor like this in one of these iconic roles that you have not yet seen before. So I just had a good time (laughs) watching Nicholson in this movie. And it, I don't know. It's fun to see a guy who obviously he's quite old now see him back in his younger days. And of course he's, he's 38 for this movie. So he's not like a spring chicken then either, but still uh, it's always fun to return to these kinds of performances for movie stars like Nicholson.
1: Uh, Let's talk about the other Oscars that this movie won.
0: Let's do it, Christian. Um, So we obviously are looking at the Oscars as part of this month. And so we talked about Nicholson and Fletcher. But I want to ask you about the screenplay then, Christian. And we did talk about the adaptation, some things that were changed. Ken Casey obviously was not pleased with that. Uh, but ultimately, this would go on to win the award for Best Adapted Screenplay. And you're our resident writer, Christian, so I'm definitely curious as to your thoughts on the success of the screenplay, in your opinion, the, the dialogue, if you want to mention it. But I actually wanted to start with just the the changes from the novel. Because, of course, you can have a successful adaptation that is nothing like its source material, a movie and a book or a play or what have you can stand on their own as successful stories but sometimes of course there are changes that are made that weaken uh the ultimate adaptation and so i'm just curious about your thoughts on some of these the biggest ones that i pulled out <laughs> either literally from clip notes so <laughs> uh, uh, uh but the biggest ones i pulled out were number one i was surprised to find that chief bromden who we have not mentioned uh, to this point played by will Sampson in the movie who is a um deaf and mute native americans staying at the hospital with the uh, with mcmurphy is actually the narrator and the point of view character of the novel whereas mcmurphy is someone being observed the movie does make the perspective shift into mcmurphy being the main character uh, there's also a, a major scene that we haven't talked about yet but where mcmurphy breaks the guys out from the hospital and they go fishing and ironically In the novel, that's actually a planned trip, and Ratchet gets involved, tries to get it canceled, but Dr. Spivey, who's the administrator of the hospital, ends up tagging along, and so it's not just these guys breaking out and going on this trip. Uh, We also have one of the characters, um, Cheswick, who we haven't mentioned yet, of course, actually dies by suicide in the novel, which uh, a completely different character dies by suicide in the movie. And the ending is just more uncertain. Um, Of course, spoilers if you have not yet watched the movie, but uh, the ending of this movie, Chief Bromden ends up breaking out of the hospital. He's one of the um, involuntarily committed folks, of course. And he runs off into the distance and the movie feels us leaving happy and hopeful about his future, whereas the novel is much more uncertain about what's coming for him. So in terms of those changes, Christian, did anything stand out to you as as particularly notable? I, the point of view shift for me was surprising, but anything that stood out to you?
1: I like the changes that were made. and And, and this is the reason why. It doesn't necessarily favor one of the uh, what's what, patience over the other? They the way that they're written, they each occupy their own unique identity, and despite McMurphy being quote unquote the lead, he is the lead through which almost the best parts you could say of the patients are brought out, and as much as I enjoyed Chief Bromden. I think that his, in this film, it was better suited for him to kind of come out as an interesting and complex figure toward the end rather than from the very beginning. It really pulls the rug out from under you and allows you to, I'm, I'm not quite sure, be like, what other tricks do these patients have? I'm quite fascinated by the screenplay. I think it does a phenomenal job of getting a group identity and also a sense of space. You really get to understand these different, the different parts of this hospital.
0: Right. It, it This uh definitely a strength of both the screenplay and where it takes you and, uh, of course, the actual filmmaking, the camera work. Uh, they shot in a, a real... Uh, mental hospital in Oregon that's still open today. Uh, apparently, none of the buildings are the same; they've all been demolished and rebuilt. But still, a functioning hospital. Uh, and the screenplay does make great use of these rooms, whether it's the the main meeting room where they sit down for their therapy sessions with Nurse Ratchet, or they play cards, or the the pool that they swim in, or the tub room where they put on their <laughs> There are poker games in which McMurphy wins all their cigarettes. They really create a great sense of space. There's a good balance of each, I mean, within the screenplay, of of each location. And uh, that part was pretty successful to me. Just creating a sense of place and a sense of space, which is so important to a good movie you want to feel like you've been to that place after you've seen the movie and it feels like after this movie rolls the credits that you could give yourself a tour of this hospital you feel like you've you've seen every important area you've you've seen every nook and cranny
1: that that's my take
0: on it and i especially like
1: how once again the characters are at the forefront i really enjoyed it and the directing milos foreman's directing is quite wonderful it, it's it's one of those where the place, as you just mentioned, the place is just as important as the characters. And not necessarily the confinement, but the use of windows uh, and how windows are things to open and to close. Windows are things to throw stuff through, to crash, and to find escape plans to look at the outside world in or from the outside to look into. That is captivated me. I'm g- I'm going to share something that I was not in the best mood when I saw this movie and when I was watching it
0: thought man this thing's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a real uh, you know when you obviously when you come to a movie like this where you know the director won for best director, you wonder what got him the win and I honestly felt like this wasn't the most the most visually exciting movie, although obviously it did get nominated for its cinematography. And that is a very key part of directing a movie, is, is obviously <laughs> shooting it. But I, I honestly feel like the strength of Foreman's direction is the performances that he gets out of his characters. And we talked at length about Nicholson and Fletcher, but this is a really, really strong supporting cast. And like we talked about with the portrayal of mental illness, there's nothing here that feels outright offensive. Um, certainly people who are not encumbered with any kind of mental illness, severe or, or mild, Taking on that illness, but the the actors clearly have a sense of respect for the people they're portraying, and there's nothing really too over the top outside of a a few screaming matches that happen, or you know, a character with an anger issue starts yelling at the room, which feels completely consistent with his character and not very melodramatic. Um, And you have things as as mild as uh, Danny DeVito's character who. Uh, is playing uh, a guy named Martini who is just very soft-spoken and uh, he's obviously very small in stature uh, and and just, you know, seems, seems maybe he is, I don't know the, I I don't even know the word to say it because of course (laughs) there's nothing explicitly diagnosed, but obviously seems a little bit developmentally maybe behind. But then you also have Brad Dourif in an Oscar-nominated supporting performance playing Billy Babbitt, who's putting on this stutter and he's struggling with depression and his, you know, Um, self-image. And all of these performances are, to, the, to my opinion, really strong. And I, I think, of, of course, that's the strength of the actors, but Foreman directing them too. Um, and so when you combine it with this really strong sense of place, this great use of windows uh, as, as a symbol and managing the tension very well between the two central characters you can understand how he was he was awarded uh obviously best picture and best director are often correlated but this feels earned not just like a (laughs) natural oh this is gonna win best picture let's give it to him
1: do you want us to talk about whether or not it's the best picture of 1975 or do you want to save that for the oscars episode
0: Let's save that, Christian. We'll save that for the Oscars episode, and we'll put it in conversation with the rest of the movies that we watched uh, in addition to the ones that uh, were not covered on this show. Um, Have you you finished seeing all five of them? Yeah. Yes, I have. Okay.
1: I think that two deserve to be there.
0: (laughs) It's absurd. (laughs) Oh, Christian. I haven't seen enough 1975 movies to actually say... (laughs) who I think deserves to be there or not, but I have no I have. problems with this lineup. This is, I mean, in terms of um, five film lineups for Best Picture, 1975 is often looked to as one of the strongest uh, Best Picture lineups we've gotten, and I have no complaints on my end. I liked all these did, movies. So,
1: did you, did you read my review for Nashville?
0: I sure did, Christian, and it is confounding. I can't wait to <laughs> discuss it with you next week.
1: Oh my goodness, Nashville. Anyway,
0: okay. Um, Last thing about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, at least for me, um, I actually just want uh, your specific thoughts on Chief Romden, on on Will Sampson and his his character, his his acting, uh, because I really felt that, although Brad Dourif is quite good in this movie, that the real supporting actor nomination should have gone to him. And he plays a very fascinating character, a person who is in the hospital for his deafness and muteness and uh some assuming other psychological challenges and comes to reveal to mcmurphy that he can hear and he can speak and he's putting it on uh to to basically go through the motions at this hospital and he goes on a fascinating character journey where his relationship with mcmurphy gives him the confidence to escape from the hospital and, and to live his own life once again and obviously the climactic ending of this movie is uh, McMurphy being lobotomized Chief Bromden putting him out of his misery and then breaking through the window and escaping into the <laughs> the hills of Oregon. So, what did you make of him? Just as a a, a final note on this movie, because uh, for me, honestly, I would have given him a nomination over Dorif uh, from this movie. I,
1: I think they both deserved it, and I'm not going to say over Dorif. I would say about the same because I think Billy is incredible in this movie. But uh, let let's go let's go into Chief. Chief, I love especially because he plays into the stereotype of being um, not just Native American, but it, he plays into people thinking he's deaf and dumb as kind of a, a you, you could almost treat it as a commentary on how people think anyone who's lesser than them. And historically what people used to think of Native Americans and how they oh, thought of them as savages. And here, though that's not what's at play, we are not focusing on Native Americans, we're focusing on a class of people who um not either has been written off by society or who they believe themselves society has written off. So, Chief is at the intersection of those two worlds. And I think his performance is wonderful. I think the way that he, when, when it is revealed, when he finally speaks and reveals that he has been playing this game on them so that they wouldn't understand him, so that they wouldn't know what he's capable of, it's kind of like a winking note inviting us to to root for that character. To, to want that character specifically to, to end up okay. Of all the patience for McMurphy to save, we want him to save him. Uh, and it's... I, I, I enjoy it. I'm sure some people will find maybe it, maybe it could lean too heavily on a Native American stereotype. But I actually think that's what's working in its favor.
0: That's interesting, be- only because I I didn't find him to be a very stereotypical character. Obviously, you know the the like noble Indian is a, is a offensive stereotype used in a lot of stories um, from you know America's past, and there's some aspect of that to his character. But I, I I just think it's it's interesting that they had a native character in this movie, one who was pretty much on the same you know, level playing field with every other patient in this hospital and who becomes extremely important to the movie, uh, and the story being told. And so I'm sure there are, there are some critiques of the character and I'd be, I'd be open and and curious to reading those, but uh, I was really compelled by both Bromden and Samson's performance. Uh, ultimately of course he's very key to the ending too. And it's a very powerful ending in my opinion. Um, and you can't have that uh, without a compelling character, um, in that position and a capable performer pulling it off that is one flew over the cuckoo's nest it is rentable at pretty much anywhere you can rent online or you can borrow from the library like christian and myself christian i have one trivia fact for you this was one of three movies to win the big five at the oscars best picture director screenplay and leading actor and actress can you name the other two
1: i know that one is silence of the lambs
0: that is correct
1: do you know the other one? Is the other one the other one's before this movie, right? Yes. Um is it Gone with the Wind?
0: That is a good guess. Gone with the Wind won 4 of these 5 awards. The only one it lost was for best actor. Clark Gable did not win that year. The other winner was It Happened One Night, which was nominated for only those 5 awards and uh or yeah. Was nominated for only those five and won them all in 1934, so 41 years before uh, that would happen again for the Oscars. And then, of course, it has not happened since *Silence of the Lambs*. A lot of movies have had the opportunity in terms of nominations, but have, of course, not actually won. So, as listeners know, our next episode of this show is going to be a retrospective of the 1975 Oscars. We have not seen every movie nominated for an Oscar that year. We've tried to, <clears throat> excuse me, we've tried to get some of the big. Movies of that year, so obviously the five best picture nominees and other movies that received a lot of nominations. Christian, if you had to guesstimate just off the top of your head, how many movies would you say you've seen from that year or from that ceremony? 15? Good Fifteen. Good for you. <laughs> what you mean from 1975 or from the oscar ceremony?
1: Both. Uh, maybe fourteen from the oscar ceremony, but most of them have been from the Oscars.
0: Oh, okay. Um, I know. I was looking at that list, and there's quite a few movies with just a single nomination. So. There's definitely a lot of homework to do. I have seen some of the biggest ones, obviously all five Best Picture nominees, and then a few others in addition to that. So I'm looking forward to discussing those on our show next week. It'll be a fun look, uh, commenting where we can. Obviously, we won't be able to talk about everything, every race, because we haven't seen more than <laughs> the one, the 1975 films that we've seen for the show outside of a few extras. So what can you do? But it'll be a fun show. And then we also have a bonus episode coming this week because Christian once again you partook in the virtual sundance film festival go ahead and tell the listeners what that episode will look like
1: uh okay so uh, my roommate tyler and i will once again be ranking the 11 movies we saw at sundance this year we will be talking about our favorites our least favorites there there's kind of a core top two this year uh, but on average, we would say that it's it, it's a better crop of movies than we saw last year on average. But the highs of last year might be higher for us than this year. We'll, we'll talk about what movies we're interested in showing our friends once they come out in theaters, what we were blown away by and uh, what we're uh, we're, we'll, we're going to try and highlight some newcomers to film who are either in their first or second feature but are crushing it right now
0: all right well i'm looking forward to that i enjoyed getting a chance just to listen last year to the sundance episode and so i'll look forward to doing it once again this year so keep your eyes on your podcatchers folks we'll have after this episode we'll have our oscars retrospective and our sundance 2022 uh, review episode as well so be sure to be getting all this cinema drip goodness in your coffee cups while you uh, are, are listening to our conversations here And we do, of course, thank you for listening. Obviously, we love watching these movies and discussing them and releasing these episodes. And so thank you for all the support. It means a lot. Uh, If you can, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review if you can, especially on Apple Podcasts. Helps us reach new listeners at all locations, and we love to shout out reviews here on the show. Uh, If you also have some feedback for us, you can feel free to email at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. I always say that I want emails because I love to shout people out on the show. And once again, I get to shout out our guy, Paul Gonzalez, the man behind Magic May himself. Christian, he has a blend of the month idea for us. And I got to say, Paul, usually you're pretty original, but this one, I mean, Magic May 2.0, come on, Paul. Magic May worked last year, but can we do a second round? <laughs> what do you think, Christian?
1: I mean, I, um, I let's just let's just have an episode where we invite Paul back on.
0: Let's do it. Uh, Paul, to his credit, said, A Magic May where we focus on wizards and sorcerers and coincided with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So there was some thought putting in his idea. I'm just giving him a hard time. So, Paul, we'll have to see if maybe we could bring you on for a, a special Magic May episode at down, down the road here in 2022. Of course, if you want your ideas or feedback right on the show, feel free to hit us up at podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself in the show on Twitter and Christian on Instagram. And Christian and I are both on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we're watching. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home?
1: Uh, no. no.
0: You gonna you gonna eat some ice cream tonight and rest up that, that numb jaw?
1: I got some coupons for Carl's Jr. in the mail, so I'm gonna
0: go to Carl's Jr. Okay, there you go. Go get some fast food, Christian. I, f- I feel good for you. I don't know why I said that. That came out weird. <laughs> One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, folks. Check it out. And until next time, this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.